acts. And we know that God loves to answer the prayers of his people to act. Well, as we enter Matthew 1, 1 through 17, we're entering a genealogy. And uh, normally we don't get uh, excited about genealogies, if we're honest, when we read the scriptures. It's just a list of names that we can hardly pronounce. Um, but maybe you can think about it this way. Think of, think of the genealogy as we approach it uh, this morning like a lost uh, work of art, like a lost masterpiece. Uh, apparently there's this show out there on BBC called Britain's Lost Masterpieces. And what's interesting about this show is that the way it kind of works is these, these, art, uh, these art people, they go around and they, they might see a, a photo even uh, just online of a particular piece of art that's in storage. And they look at it and they say, hmm, that looks like it might have been by so-and-so. And then they investigate further, uh, they look at the painting, uh, and, the, the, uh, and they might find, oh, that, no, that wasn't a, a lost masterpiece after all. Or they might find, after using things like infrared cameras and looking at the sketching that happened before the artist did it, they can actually certify that this is indeed a lost work of art. You see, a lot of these paintings, they're just in museum storage, and they've just been sitting there for years, and they've never been recognized for what they were because no one took the time to just go and look at the paintings and do the hard work of examining it and certifying that this is indeed a lost work of art. And Matthew's genealogy is kind of that way. It's really the certification of a masterpiece. Uh, he's, you see, what Matthew is doing is he's, he's, remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and one of the things he's trying to do is to show them that Jesus is the Christ. And he starts with his genealogy. He puts it under the nose of his Jewish readers. He has them examine it and certify what they're reading to show that Jesus, at the very least, has the credentials to be the ultimate king. You see, if you treat them the right way, the genealogies of Scripture, and this genealogy in particular, they're not old junk to be ignored, but priceless masterpieces showing God's artistry on the canvas of history. And that's what I want you to see this morning as we launch into the book of Matthew. And here's what you need to take away this morning is what Matthew is doing. We've already alluded to that, that you need to certify Jesus' credentials to be the chosen king of all history. That's what, where Matthew is going in his genealogy, and that's what we need to take away, that you need to certify Jesus' credentials to be the chosen king of all of history. First, as we enter the text this morning, let's look at verse 1. And verse 1 encompasses within it a claim, the claim. And the claim is that this is the chosen one of all history. That's what verse 1 shows us. Matthew starts right away with a claim that this is the chosen one of all of history. Look at verse 1 again with me. 1-1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And those words, the book of the genealogy, if you have a different version, I'm reading from the ESV, maybe you have something that says the record of the history or the record of the genealogy or the record of the generation. We need to actually focus on those words as seemingly insignificant as they are. They're actually really important for what Matthew is showing his readers. You see, that language, the book of the genealogy, or maybe better translated the way I would translate it, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, harkens back to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, because 
If you've ever read through Genesis and looked through its pages, you will notice a key refrain through the book of Genesis, and it says something like this. These are the generations of Jacob or Esau or uh, Isaac. And Matthew is alluding to that language. Now, you might ask, well, why are those, those, that language there in Genesis to begin with? Why, are, why, are, why do we get this language of these are the generations of so-and-so? Well, let me talk to you a minute about how those phrases work in Genesis, and then I'll explain how Matthew is co uh, connecting with that. You see, uh, at the very beginning, we have the creation story, the creation of count, God creating everything out of nothing and then giving to mankind a stewardship rule over that creation. We talked about this in going through the kingdom through covenant series. But then what happens, we know that Adam and Eve stage a coup to overtake that kingdom. Really, they're, 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 they hand over their authority to Satan, so to speak, even in trying to steal God's rule. But in the midst of that ruin, there's this promise in Genesis 3.15 of a offspring, a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So there's going to be this one that's coming, the offspring of the woman, who's going to do what Adam was supposed to do, uh, a last Adam, a, an ultimate Adam, if you will, which really drives, like we said in Kingdom Through Covenant, that series we went through together, that really drives the genealogies of Genesis, and it really drives the genealogies of Scripture as a whole. What we're doing is we're looking for that ultimate king, the one who will restore what Adam failed to do, the one who will restore things back to an Edenic rest that started at the beginning. So that's why we have all of these genealogies in Genesis. They're shaping for us and showing for us where is that seed? Where is that, that male offspring of the woman going to come from? And so many of these, uh, when they say these are the generations of uh, uh, Abraham or Terah or whoever it is, they're tracing that line. Sometimes, though, that phrase introduces also a narrative. It, it doesn't really trace a line so much as it introduces a story of the person at, uh, who's mentioned in the genealogy or in the generation. So that's how they work in Genesis. Now, what's very, very interesting is the exact words that Matthew uses here, the book of the generation of Jesus, that word, book of generation, is used uh, two times in the Greek Old Testament of Matthew, in Genesis 2-4 and in Genesis 5-1, but there's some evidence that Matthew's not looking at the Greek Old Testament, he's looking at the Hebrew Old Testament, the original. And if you account for that, then there's only one time the specific language, the book of the generation of so-and-so is used, and that is in Genesis 5.1. And let me take you there to show you what Matthew is trying to do for us. Genesis 5.1. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, or Adam, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. And the days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 100 and, 
eight, five years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and then he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and then he died, and then so on and so forth. It's a similar structure to what Matthew is doing in Matthew 1, and he's directly alluding to 5.1, which says the book of the generations of Adam. See how this works in Genesis is we get these, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. Ultimately, they trace their lineage back to Adam, but those, the, those segments, they continue until the next phrase, these are the generations of, happens. So the next one that happens after 5.1 is in chapter 6. These are generations of Noah, and so on and so forth. So what's interesting then is, is if Matthew's directly alluding to that that indication, this is the book of the generation of Adam, what's he hinting at? Well, he's hinting at a couple things. One is that just like these genealogies start with Adam, they end with Adam. They end with Jesus, who is that last Adam. And we can even say a little bit more, you know, like what Genesis does. Genesis would have us look at that genealogy or that account. You can really think of it as an account of someone's life, the the sub, those subsequent to the person, so those subsequent to Adam or those subsequent to Noah, but you're always looking for the next, these are the generations of. And the question arises is, well, then how far does Matthew 1-1 stretch? If it's doing the same thing as Genesis, uh, where's the, the, the next, these are the generations of? There is none. There is none. Why? Because this is the last genealogy. In other words, this completes the search for the serpent-crushing seed of the woman that Genesis 3.15 spoke about, that all of Scripture has been looking towards, this is the last genealogy that we need. The claim that, Jesus, uh, the, that Matthew is starting with is exclusive and immediate. This is the ultimate king. This is the last Adam. Jesus. And then he uses three terms to further describe, three titles to further describe and elaborate on that idea, Christ, son of David, and the son of Abraham. Now, Christ, we need to talk about this now. I'll mention it again as we go through it. Christ is not a last name. Uh, it is a title. It is, it is a, a description. It really literally means anointed one, the one who is anointed. And and it really is the Greek equivalent of the, uh, the Old Testament term, Mashiach, or anointed one, the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. So whenever you see Christ, it's a, a, a title ascribed to Jesus being the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king. You see, that, that language of Messiah, that language of anointed one, was spoken mainly of the Old Testament kings, and especially the lineage of David. Remember when we got, went through that idea of kingdom through covenant, we talked about the, the Davidic covenant and how there would be one to come from the line of David who would reign over the whole earth. And that ultimate one is called the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. So Matthew is making the audacious and bold claim that this is the one. This is the Christ. What about these other titles, the son of David, the son of Abraham? Well, certainly, and as we will see in the rest of the genealogy, uh, Matthew is connecting uh, Jesus uh, uh, through lineage to David and then to Abraham. But there's even a little bit more to it than that. You see, 
by describing uh, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's alluding to the two covenants, the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant that are so central to the fate of the world. You remember the Abrahamic covenant and what it provided for. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that it provided land, seed, and blessing for the nation of Israel. It established this nation as a beachhead kingdom. And yet, one of those promises, the seed promise, had a couple different aspects to it. Turn to Genesis 22, just to remind you a part of that. Genesis 22 And Genesis 22 recounts the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham's about to sacrifice him, and then the angel of the Lord intervenes and provides a substitute. But then subsequent to that, because of Abraham's obedience, we get this promise, this elaboration, this kind of final seal on the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 22:15. It says this, the angel of Yahweh said, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So you see there, even in that seed promise, he's promising a lot of offspring, but then he narrows the focus and he says, there's one male offspring that's going to possess the gate of his enemies. He's going to be the victorious offspring, the king that was going to do what Adam was supposed to do. That line is going through Abraham. But notice too, that through this singular offspring, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So by calling Jesus the son of Abraham, he is alluding to that promise of that individual seed who will be victorious and who will also, through him, bless the nations of the world. And that promise really gets developed even further in Genesis, just to remind you where that goes. In Genesis 49, as we have Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob... That promise of that same one that was just spoken of in Genesis 22 is narrowed further in Genesis 49, verse 10. When Jacob is blessing his sons, he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see, that ultimate king, the king over the whole world, will come not only through Abraham, but will come through Judah. Which really leads us to this language of the son of David. It's alluding to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, which expands on the Abrahamic covenant and describes the nature of the king, the coming one who will come from the line of David. Just to remind you of that, I'll take you to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 17. Davidic covenant initiation is recorded in 2 Samuel 7 and also in 1 Chronicles 17. In 1 Chronicles 17, 11, you remember the situation, right? David gets to Jerusalem. He sets up his kingdom. He's reigning over all Israel. And he wants to build a temple. He wants to build a house for God. And God says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house in terms of a dynasty. 1 Chronicles 17, 11 says this, 
in regard to the, this is the institution of the Davidic covenant, says this, when your days are fulfilled, David, to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So by Matthew saying that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying you're the ultimate Davidic king, you're the ultimate son of David that this promise talks about in the Davidic covenant, the one who's going to reign over the whole world and bring it back to an Edenic rest, an Edenic peace. And not only that, he's the son of Abraham. He's this seed that's going to be victorious over his enemies, that serpent-crushing seed of the woman, but also the one who's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. So right from the outset in 1-1, Matthew is making exclusive and ultimate claims of Jesus Christ. This is the one. This is the ultimate king. This is the chosen one of God from all of history. And as we think about that, even, even before we go further in the genealogy, there's an application for us. We, I don't know if you're visiting here with us today or not, but regardless, we have exclusive and ultimate claims as Christians. We, we are not just going around the world being nice people, doing nice things. No, what we claim is, is what Matthew is claiming here, that Jesus is the ultimate king of all of history and will one day conquer all kingdoms of this world and will set up a physical throne over the whole earth with justice and righteousness and peace and prosperity. And to him alone we have ultimate allegiance. And as Christians, and as Christians, we need to recognize the exclusive and ultimate claims that we have, and we need to not shy away from those, but to pronounce those just as Matthew does here. So the claim in verse 1 is that Jesus is the chosen one of all of history. He is the ultimate king. But now he needs to prove it. He needs to prove it. And so that's where we go to the credentials. The credentials, and the credentials focus on the chosen line through history. The credentials focus on the chosen line through all history, which enters us into verses 2 through 16, the genealogy proper. And really, that's what he's doing in these verses 2 through 16. You see those three titles, Christ, son of David, and son of Abraham. He's going to connect those three in his genealogy. It starts with Abraham, it pauses at David, and it goes all the way to the Christ. He's proving his point of what he just said. Let me prove to you what I just said, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and that's what he does to a Jewish audience by recounting the line, the lineage from Abraham to the Christ. So, as we walk through this, it's not just a list of names, it's a list of history. And one of the things you need to pay attention to, uh, Matthew's kind of default format and formula is uh, this father begat or fathered 
this son, right? Referring to the male uh, prog- uh, participation in the birthing process, and he's tracing that line. But some t- Matthew doesn't just do that. He doesn't just give us a list. Sometimes he elaborates. He gives a little bit more information than that just so-and-so begat so-and-so. He describes a little bit more of what's going on. And as he does that, he's doing so for a purpose. You need to pay attention to the elaborations that Matthew will bring in this genealogy. So let's start working through it. And there's three segments here, even as Matthew himself talks about later. So let's look at the first segment, which really traces a progress to the king from Abraham to David. Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So even right there, that's a bit of an elaboration, right? He's not just saying he fought, uh, uh, that Jacob fathered Judah. He also mentions that Jacob also fathered his brothers, a.k.a. the the 12 patriarchs. And why does he mention that? Well, I think if you were to go back to the story that recounts uh, Jacob's 12 sons, you would go to uh, especially to Genesis 37 through 50. And what's interesting about that story is that as you start out, all the, 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 the camera is focused on Joseph, is focused on the youngest son and not Judah at all which is really interesting. But then as time progresses, in fact, you find out that Judah's not a good guy. Uh, he is a conniving, self-focused uh, individual who wants uh, things his own way and for himself. That's the way he starts. And yet by the end of Genesis, he's the one that's before Joseph, though he doesn't know it's Joseph initially, offering to substitute himself for his younger brother, Benjamin, a complete reversal. And by the time you get to Genesis 49, like we already read before, it's Judah who gets the line and not Joseph. Why? Well, what we could say is, is because of God's work in Judah's life to change him, but also God's choice, his choice of Judah over against his brothers to carry on the kingly line. And so what Matthew is doing there, he's reminding them of the story, but he's also saying, remember how Judah was chosen. You wouldn't expect Judah to begin with, but God is the one who worked in his life and chose Judah over against his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And speaking of Judah, by the way, here Matthew gives a little bit of elaboration on what's going on there. You remember Genesis 38, where Tamar seduces her father-in-law to have an incestuous relationship by which two twins, Perez and Zerah, were conceived. I would encourage you to go back and read that. But what's interesting there is like, why is Matthew drawing our attention to this? Uh, Perez is the line that the kingly line goes from, but why is he drawing us attention to this? This is kind of sordid details of Israel's history. What do we know? Well, we know Tamar is probably a Canaanite, maybe an Aramean. She's a Gentile. She's one outside of Israel and God's people. And this is kind of gross details if in that, that, that story. It's just scandalous. And what's also interesting in that these twins that are eventually conceived, Zerah is the one who sticks his hand out first, and he, he looks like he's going to be the firstborn, and yet actually it's Tam- uh, Perez that comes out. And so again, we see some themes here. One, we see God's choice and the reversal of expectations in choosing Perez over Zerah, but we also see God's use of a Gentile to perpetuate the kingly line. And we also see that perpetuation and provision for God's people in the midst of scandal. 
And we keep going. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And again, we get a new elaboration. Why is he focusing our attention on Rahab? Rahab was the prostitute in Jericho who helped uh, the spies, the two spies, as they're spying out the land at the beginning of the conquest, Joshua 2 and following. Uh, she's the one that hides the spies from being captured and helps them escape because she has faith. She's heard about Yahweh and what he's done, and she has faith that he is the true God. She's a prostitute. There's some scandal in her life. She's a Gentile, and yet she is used sovereignly by God to preserve his people. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. We get another elaboration. Ruth, as a mother, enters into this line. You remember the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, another Gentile who is outside of Israel, and yet uh, she had such faithfulness to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and to following Yahweh that she came back from Moab to Bethlehem, and then, then through God's provision, she married Boaz and fathered Obed, perpetuating, perpetuating her dead husband's line. So here we have another, and even in the, even in the story of, of Ruth, you remember chapter 3 in Ruth, it looks a little scandalous. She comes at night and uh, lays at the feet of Boaz, and it's like, uh, that's, uh, that's a little sketchy on the surface of it. And yet, this is what God uses. There's nothing improper that happened, but this is what God uses, a, a Gentile in a seemingly scandalous situation to perpetuate the kingly line. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And there again, Matthew adds detail. David, the king. Of course, there was Saul who came before David, but he was a Benjaminite. He was not a Judahite. But David was the one that God chose. He was the king, the preeminent king, the, the quintessential king based on the choice of God. And as you think and you step back, as you look at the history from Abraham to David, what you see, what you see from Abraham to David is an overall progress in God's promises to his people, right? He brings them into their land. He gives them a king, which is a good thing. So there's this progress from Abraham to David. But then there's regress. There's regress from the king from David to Babylon as we enter this next segment in the genealogy. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So here again, Matthew's drawing our attention. It's not the stock line of so-and-so fathered so-and-so. We get a little bit of extra information, and the extra information is that uh, David was the father of Solomon, but that really came about because David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then murdered Uriah the Hittite. And what's interesting about drawing our attention to that, that's recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, what's interesting is uh, in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan confronts David about that relationship, and, and David confesses, he pronounces a curse on David's line. He says, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised the word of the Lord. 
And really that one sin, you can trace to that one sin, and essentially Matthew's doing it here, you can trace from that one sin the downfall of the kingdom in Israel. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Under Rehoboam, uh, the kingdom split into two, northern Israel and southern Judah. There was civil war. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. If you were to read through these lists of kings, you can find them in First or Second Kings. You would see a basically a repeat of the book of Judges, where there is some good kings, and there's some uh, goodness that happens, guys like Hezekiah, and yet even guys like Hezekiah are not fully faithful to the Lord, and there's a spiral down and down and down and down and down because the kings are not faithful to the Mosaic Covenant, to the law, nor is Israel, which ultimately leads to the deportation, the exile to Babylon. But really that happened ultimately because of the very first line that was mentioned, because of David's sin. Because of David's sin, that paved the way to, to the split and the, the deportation of the kingdom. And that last line there, the father of Jeconiah. Jeconiah is the last one who sits on the Davidic throne before the exile. Really the last one who has sat on the Davidic throne to this very day, in a sense. And he chose Jeconiah. There were other rulers. There was Jeconiah's uncle who sat on the throne and others along with him, but really, Jeconiah is the last one. And then in the deportation to Babylon in 586 BC. And so, what we see from David to Jeconiah to the the deportation is we see a regress. There was progress from Abraham to David. We got to the kingdom. There's, they're in the land. It looks great. And then there's a regress from David to Babylon. Which brings us to the final segment in the genealogy, which we could characterize this way. There's patience or there's patience needed for the king, Babylon to the Christ. Babylon to the Christ is where patience is needed. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now, what's interesting is from these names, except for Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, there is none, none of these names are otherwise known in the Bible. Now, the reality is, is that the Jews kept uh, genealogical records in the temple, especially of important family lines, of one of which would be the Davidic family line, so we shouldn't be surprised that we don't see these names elsewhere, except for Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. But what's also interesting is that essentially these folks are unknown. They live, they really lived, but we know nothing about them because what's happened is that the Davidic line has become obscure. 
It's become obscure. Even between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was, uh, for a time, Jewish independence and a Jewish ruler, but that ruler was not Davidic. And really what's going on here, right, uh, right leading up to the deportation to Babylon, the prophets spoke of the deportation. They spoke of the exile, and they said that you, Israel, are going into exile, but you will be restored as a nation, and the one who's going to restore you is going to be David. In other words, there's going to be the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, who's going to ultimately bring you out of exile. And so really, this time period from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ was a time of patience, looking, waiting. When is that ultimate Davidite, when is that ultimate Davidic king going to come and lead the people out of exile? And Matthew traces the line, the legal royal descent to Jacob, the father of Joseph, And then notice, we get another one of Matthew's elaborations in verse 16. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, and the grammar in the Greek is really explicit, the the whom there is feminine, referring to Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Notice how careful Matthew is being there. He doesn't say Joseph begot or fathered Jesus, although he uses the same verb for born, was born, although he changes it. Instead of it being an active voice, he changes it to a passive voice. And he says, from Mary was born Jesus. So he is is clearly separating based on his, from his patterns that he's already done. He's clearly saying Joseph was not the father of Jesus, not in a biological sense. But he was born, he was, had a human birth from Mary. Now, if you're a Jewish reader reading this for the first time, you're like, what's going on there? Uh, and he'll explain it in next week when we get into the verse 118 through the end of the chapter. But for right now, what you know is that there is not a direct biological connection between Joseph and Jesus. And you might ask, well, if there's no biological connection, can Jesus really be the heir to the throne? And the answer is yes, because... Joseph, then her son, Jesus, inherits the adopted legal right to the Davidic throne. So Jesus, biologically connected with Joseph inherits through adoption that legal right to the throne, which is why Matthew is saying, we the Christians, we are calling Jesus the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king. And we'll get more details on that, really what Matthew hints at in verse 16 next week. And he's done his, he's finished his proof Right? What did he start with? The title in 1-1, Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he just linked Abraham to David and David to the Christ. And he is, he is setting before his readers and he is setting before the Jews. He's saying, look, Christ has the credentials. 
Jesus has the credentials. Now, he hasn't finished his proof that Jesus really is the Christ. Just because he has the credentials doesn't mean he really ultimately is, but it provides the basis, the groundwork that he will build off of in the rest of the gospel. Really, that title that we started with, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it it really is a title for the rest of the gospel, and Matthew's going to unfold the rest of that for us. Now, there's one bit more of information that, that Matthew is giving us, but before we move to that, even as we read this genealogy, there's a couple things that should stand out to you. First, you should recognize the historical groundedness of Jesus. As Christians, we are not claiming, uh, we're, we're, we're not claiming something that's non-historical or some sort of spiritual out there sort of thing. We are claiming that the ultimate king, that Jesus, that Jesus has a real human lineage in the sense of a real uh, biological connection, at least to Mary, but then a legal connection to Joseph. This is real history. This is grounding things in history. It's tangible. You can look up these records is Matthew's point. But then here's the other piece. As you, we've gone through this line, this is messed up family history. I don't know if you thought about your uh, family and you know back to its history and, or you've done, and you look back in your history and you see all sorts of sin. And really this family history is no different, right? This is, this is, it's a legal lineage, but or it's, a, it's a royal lineage, but there's messed up family history here. And yet a messed up family history that God has sovereignly used. He sovereignly used Gentiles in the line to preserve his people Israel. He sovereignly used scandalous situations to build the history of his son. If you think of the human side of that history. And if you think about that, we know God the Son has existed for all eternity. He has always been in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And yet, when he became man, he entered and locked himself into this line of history. He associated himself with this line of history, which is amazingly humble. If you think about that, that Jesus would, at least on his human side, take on that association of the scandal and the sin of the Davidic line. If you think about it practically this way, sometimes we think even as Christians, but even if uh, we struggle and we say, I am such a sinner, if we're honest with ourselves, we understand my heart is gross, it is uh, sick, it is wrong, I am wicked, and if God is holy, then he would have nothing whatsoever to do with me. He would never associate with me because my thoughts, my heart is so dark. And yet, even here, there is encouragement, right? Because God the Son associated himself with sinners like you and like me. It has been profoundly encouraging to me this week that as I even I've seen my sin, that God the Son associated himself with sinners like me to save me. And he is not ashamed, as Hebrews talks about, to call us brothers and sisters. Amazing. So, first, we've seen the claim that Jesus is the chosen one of all of history in verse 1. We've seen the credentials that the chosen line through history in verses 2 through 16. 
Now let's talk about the clockwork, the clockwork, the chosen time for history. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So obviously Matthew's making a big deal about 14. Um, I, I think he was probably a mathematician, blessed among men. Um, um, but 14's a big deal uh, for some reason or another to Matthew. Why is the question, right? Why is, the question, why, why is he making such this big deal about 14, right? And the honest reality is, if you actually look up, uh, say, Ruth or 1 Chronicles 3, where Matthew's probably pulling a lot of this genealogical information, or you look at the history in 1 through 2 Kings, there's some names that Matthew omitted. He didn't list every single name. So he's kind of purposely crafting things in such a way uh, to build on this 14 thing. So why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Well, at the very least, we could say that he's seeing symmetry. I mean, that's unarguable, right? He's got these three uh, segments, and they are all characterized by this 14-generation thing, right? So he sees symmetry. And we could build on even that a little bit. If there's symmetry in this family line, well, these, these families didn't have any control over any of that. It, it's God's orchestration of history. I think that's what Matthew's kind of hinting at, that that we see this symmetry in history, the perfect timing of God in history for all of these segments. There's another piece to it that we could add. If you were to count the direct line from Abraham to David, then uh, David's name is the 14th in the list. In other words, the measure of a David-length uh, generation or, or genealogy is 14. So you can kind of think about it like that. It's a 14-length uh, associated with David. Now, why is that significant? Well, each of these periods that Matthew is talking about is associated with David in one line or another. From Abraham to David, we get the rise to the king, right? That, that we've got the rise to David, essentially, but then that regress from, from uh, David to the deportation, uh, that's ultimately due to David's sin. That's ultimately due to David's sin. But then even, as I said earlier, the prophets going into the deportation, the exile in Babylon, they said the one who's going to lead you out of this Israel is David. Right? So really, David, or ultimately the Davidic king, the Davidic covenant, is characterizing all of history, but God's orchestrating it with perfect timing and perfect symmetry. Another way you can look at it is this. Uh, do you remember where Abraham was from? Where was he from? He was from Ur of the Chaldeans, a.k.a. Babylon. The same area uh, that Israel went into exile to. So we've got from Abraham and basically Babylon to David the king in Israel. Then we go from David the king in Israel to uh, Israel in uh, Babylon and then we move from Israel and Babylon to Jesus back in Israel, right? We've got this symmetry to history, and that is all due to God's perfect orchestration and plan for all of history. Do you know that? That God orchestrates every minute detail of all of history. Nothing is left to chance. Everything is ultimately from him. So, we've seen the claim, the chosen one of all of history, that Jesus is that ultimate king, 
verse 1. We've seen the credentials, the chosen line through history from verses 2 through 16, and we've seen the clockwork, the chosen time for history. And as we sum up today and as we walk away, what do we need to do? What is Matthew trying to do with this, right? What is he trying to do? Well, one thing he's trying to do, right, is he's, he's t- telling his Jewish audience, look, look at the lineage, look at the history, and stand in awe. You may not believe yet that Jesus is the Christ, but at least you can see he has that potential, he has that basis. You at least need to certify that Jesus has that claim to the throne. But for those who, of us who know Christ, who believe that Jesus is the Christ, one of the things we need to do is marvel at God's orchestration of history, his sovereign control over this family history, and even using sinful humans to accomplish his purpose in his timing. We could even say this, even as God has sovereignly orchestrated the, the, the perfect timing of his son's first coming, well, certainly he is sovereignly orchestrating the time of Jesus' second coming. What we long for, we want him to come and establish his kingdom over this whole world as the ultimate king to which every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we wait patiently. We wait patiently, waiting for God's timing and orchestrating of the next phase of history especially as things are hard or difficult, or we wonder why things keep going on the way that they do, much like the Jews would in exile, yet we can wait in for God's perfect timing of history. But here's the main thing that you need to take away as you look over this list. Here's the main thing. Leaving this genealogy, Matthew wants you to say, this is the one. This is the Christ. This is the ultimate one of history. The Gospels show us Christ. They portray the glories, the majesties, the beauty of Jesus, and this is one of those portrayals, just like a masterpiece. Sometimes we don't look at the genealogies and we think, well, that's boring, right? It's like old junk in a basement, but this is a masterpiece of God's perfect control and painting on the canvas of history. So certify Jesus' credentials to be the chosen king of all history. Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing, and God the Son, that you would humble yourself to become man and that you would own the human history of being the Davidic king. Lord, thank you that you have orchestrated it all. Thank you that, Jesus, you came at just the perfect time. Thank you that you are the ultimate Davidic king. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray for the boldness to proclaim your excellencies this week to, to, as we encounter people and as we encounter people who think, or even as we ourselves might think, that there's no way the Son of God, God the Son, would, would, would associate with me at all. And yet, we can point to this genealogy and say, yes, he will, he has. He's come to save sinners. And Jesus, we thank you. And we thank you that you are the ultimate King. Lord Jesus, we ask that your kingdom would come. We ask that you would come and you would reign not only over your church, but also over the whole world, visibly, physically, that you would establish justice and righteousness. Lord, But we pray that you would save those who do not yet know you, and pray that more in our city, in our region, would swear allegiance to you, Jesus the King. We love you and we thank you. Praise you for your word. Your name.
Amen.